Okay. Um, welcome to the fourth class of our series, and it was supposed to be Christian anti-Semitism. You don't know that, but that happens to have been what I prepared. And um, on Sunday, I changed everything. So um, what we are going, I'm, I'm calling it now the Islam, Islam and the people of the book, because it's not just Islam and the Jews. It is anybody who is, believes in one God. So it's the Abrahamic religions, uh, Judaism and Christianity. And then I thought we really need to be as educated as possible about the Islamic State. And so I have, um, I've been doing a lot of putting together of information for you about that as well, okay? So what that means is that some of you who took the class last year, one of the handouts might be duplicate. Um, I tried to update things. If they are duplicates, we'll, we'll recycle them. And if you recognize them or if you have them, we'll recycle them. And a lot of them, I put into handouts documents that are very long, rather than just throwing up, up on, a, on a PowerPoint, okay? So that's really the use of the, of the handouts and also timelines and things like that. So we're gonna go over what, what I did talk about last year a little bit, which is the way Islam um, and the Quran regard people of the book, which is Jews and Christians. And when I say book, we know already that there's a Torah, the New Testament, and the Quran, and they're all basically a, a linear build on each other. So Muhammad had great respect for that, and he was the one who coined the term people of the book. So, so this is not necessarily a modern um, innovation. You're going to see that there was great involvement at the very beginning of the formulation of the religion. So we're going to start with a quick recap of last week when we last, not last week, yeah, it was last week, um, when we last left, uh, the Muslims were taking over basically the entire Mediterranean. And this is, generally speaking, what their lands looked like by the end of the 8th century, all the way into Spain. And we're stopped at the Battle of Tours right there by Christians, and all the way heading towards um, Mongolia, basically. Okay? So, and that was done within 100 years of Muhammad's life. During Muhammad's life, this much was captured. Now remember, we're talking in the time of Muhammad about a, not a primitive society exactly, but a tribal society that was based on tribal um, relationships and tribal feuds. And so as he's leading his army of the believers, he's going through 25 miles of sand and then to a village and getting um, people to believe in what he is teaching. And then by 632, he died. But within three or four caliphs after him, well, the first one, all of the Arabian Peninsula is captured. Jerusalem is captured very fast. Baghdad and Damascus become major capitals of the caliphate 
important. Heard of them before. I keep bringing up the same countries, so we're going to have to change this next year because all roads seem to lead back to here, don't they? All right, so here's what Mohammed did. Mohammed, as we know, had some, was living in Mecca. He was a Meccan. He was a member of the Quraysh tribe, which were the leadership. And he was a merchant. And his beliefs and his revelations and his proselytizing really ticked off the people in Mecca, and he had to flee. So we all remember that in the year 622, and he went up to Medina, which was called Yathrib. The fact is that he was really in Medina for only about 10 years, and then he returned to Mecca. Scholars have studied the Quran, and they've seen that it has a, a sort of a dual emotionality to it. It has an emotionality when he's in Mecca of peace and the love of God and compassion and be kind to orphans, etc. And when he goes to Medina, when he is forced out, expelled basically of Mecca, there's a little bit more fighting implied. There's a little bit more anger implied. So, in, in the Quran, just like um, we can take apart the Quran, just like we did with the Old Testament and the, and the Torah, we can see that in the beginning is when this dates from. So right when Muhammad was giving uh, his revelations, was having them written down. And I, by the way, forgot to mention this as everybody left last week. I sent home a handout that was on, from the front page of the New York Times. It was attached to your handout on the back that said that they'd found a piece of the Quran that they had dated to the time of Muhammad. Now, the reason that, that was interesting is because we aren't, and still aren't completely sure if it was written in his presence, within the number of years of his presence, or within 10 years. Okay, it's not like, like Jesus where they never knew him. However, this seemed to have dated right to the exact time period. Now, there were a few scholars that said, well, you're only dating the, the parchment. You're not necessarily dating the words and who wrote them. But it was a pretty amazing find because it means that the current Quran is as close to the original thing as possible that we find archaeologically. Okay, so when, he, when his prophecies were first being expounded, you have a very gentle exhortation to believe in one God and to believe that Muhammad is the last in a line of prophets. And he says, for instance, in Surah 5, Surah is a chapter. Um, 44 is a line, and that's called an ayah. We sent down the Torah in which was guidance and light. The prophets who submitted it, submitted to God, judged by it for the Jews, as did the rabbis and scholars, the same way they did with the scripture of Allah. And everybody is agreeing, essentially, is what that's saying. We're all on the same page. Oh, people of the scripture. Now, this is 
yes directed towards a specific audience there were christians in the arabian peninsula mostly jews however that he came in contact with everybody else was pagan but in terms of the people of the book so he calls them in this translation people of the scripture there has come to you our messenger to make it clear to you that after a period of messengers and we talked about that last week after moses after jesus you shouldn't say there didn't come anybody that brought good tidings but i have come uh, god has sent muhammad a bringer of good tidings and allah is over all things competent so basically he's that in that surah lining himself up in the line of prophets and saying you're saying that um, there is a line of prophets well guess what I'm another one in that line of prophets and so there's no difference this one is my favorite this surah says do not argue with the people of the scripture that is the Torah the Old Testament and the New Testament do not argue except in a way that is best because if somebody commits an injustice then you say we believe in that that has been revealed to you and to us we all believe the same thing our God and your God is one this is from the Quran okay we are Muslims, we are in submission to God. We have sent down to you now the Quran. So the Torah you got, the New Testament you got, now it's the Quran. And those who we previously gave the scriptures should believe in it. <coughs> Gentle. I not not problematic at all in my in my opinion. Now the other thing that Muhammad did was he began to take parts of Judaism that seemed to work and seemed to be comfortable and merge it into the practices of his early Islam. So for example, the worship of one God. That was new to the Arabian Peninsula in terms of the pagans. The direction of prayer, he said, was to Jerusalem. The word Jerusalem, you're right, does not appear in the Quran, but it's called the outer place, the farthest place. And it's been taken to mean by every, all the scholars that it means Jerusalem. So because of the Dome of the Rock, because of the winged night journey that he took, he had the direction of prayer to be Jerusalem. The Quran is full of Bible stories. I'm not going to go over them here. It's in your book, but essentially everybody, including Jesus. And by the way, Jesus shows up a lot for Armageddon. Jesus is going to, for the Muslims, presage the coming of the Messiah. That Jesus. Okay? And that's going to, that'll come up later. We're going to talk a little bit about apocalyptic thought in Islam. He also brought in the fast of Ashura, which is the 10th of Tishrei. We discussed that. That is, that's a fast. That was way before Ali was killed and they began to beat themselves on the fast of Ashura. Okay, that was 
when the Quran was written. Ali um, was not there yet. You may not have any pork. Same thing. Prayer in the beginning, three times a day. You have to wash before you go into the temple, just as, uh, before prayer, just as the priest did for the holy temple. And almsgiving is important, and the day of judgment is very key to the end of days. However, when he went to Medina, things between him and Jewish tribes got a little tenser. And I'm not going to, I can't go into great detail about each event, but essentially the events got more and more violent between Muhammad and the Jewish inhabitants of the Jewish tribes around Medina. And you can begin to see the tone in the Quran change. So historically speaking, we can see, yes, there were problems. Now here's the scenario. Muhammad is in Medina. He's been kicked out of Mecca. He's got a lot of followers in Medina. And there are skirmishes. So if you remember where Mecca is, you know, 75 miles down the coast, there are skirmishes of people of the Quraysh tribe coming up toward Medina, and they're getting into it. And there's a lot of fighting. And sometimes Muhammad and his followers win, and sometimes occasionally the people of Mecca win. So the first incident happened with the Banu Kenaika tribe in which, and it was called the War of Badr, the Quraysh came and attacked Muhammad and his followers. And Muhammad and his followers won. However, Muhammad suspected that somebody in the Jewish community, in one of the tribes, had tipped off the bad guys. And so, rather than uh, stone them or do something that might be very violent, he, he um, exiled the entire tribe to the city, to the town of Khebar. Now that was unusual. He took their property and he, he exiled them, it, but it didn't seem harsh at the time. However, in the Battle of Uhud, this time Muhammad and his followers lost the battle against the Meccans. And they thought that there had been an assassination attempt against Muhammad and that it was as a result of a Jewish tribe called the Anandir tribe. So the followers who were very angry at this assassination attempt besieged the, this tribe of Jewish people, destroyed their palm trees, and the Jews there finally surrendered and left. Muhammad took their property and they were exiled again to Khebar. So now you have two groups of Jewish tribes that have been basically pushed away. The Banu Kuraiza in the Battle of the Trench was the worst. It was once again against the Meccans, but this time it appeared to the writers of the Quran in any, 
extent, that the Jewish tribe of, the, of Banu Khoraiza, Ben Khoraiza, had actually supported the Meccans. And therefore, they were considered traitors, this Jewish tribe. And everyone said, well, the other two, when there had been suspicion about the Jewish tribes, they had been, their property had been taken, they had been expelled to Khaybar. However, after a lot of discussion and a lot of chaos, six to 900 Jewish men were killed. And the women and children were sold into slavery. That was a major and horrific event in the history of the Muslims, the early Muslims, and a tribe of Jews. Now, what's interesting about that is that finally the town of Khaybar, where everybody had been sent in the first two incidents, was conquered by Muhammad. The Jews were made to be subservient. They had to pay a tax. And they lived there for several more years. It's, it's near Medina. And they were finally expelled by the third caliph, Umar. And Jews were never allowed to return to the Arabian Peninsula since then. Expelled. And I often wondered when I was studying this, there was a guy named Henry Kissinger who was the Secretary of State, and he went to Riyadh, and I thought, what did they do with his passport? You know. And now, the truth is that there is a lot of commerce between the United States and other countries and uh, the Saudis. And non-believers or b people of the book can all go to Saudi Arabia. I think they have to fix up their passport so it doesn't have Israel on it. But um, they can't go to Mecca. They what? Well, sometimes they don't stamp Israel anymore, but if you have, like my daughter Mimi, who was going to, she works for a nonprofit agency that goes to Lebanon, and um, I wasn't happy about it, and in the end she didn't go, but she has a very thick passport with lots and lots of Israeli stamps. So, you know, she would have had to get a new one had she gone to Lebanon. It's the same thing, but okay. So they, so the Jews were basically expelled, not under Muhammad, under the third uh, caliph, Umar. What's interesting about this city, by the way, is it came up a couple of years ago. Because in modern times, it has inspired an Arabic chant used in demonstrations against Israel. The chant sort of goes, Chebar, Chebar, Ya Yahud, um, O Jews, the army of Muhammad will return. But they're using that city as the, as the peg upon which to put it. The other thing that happened was Hezbollah was shelling the town of Afula probably 10 years ago. And they did it with a new weapon that they said was powerful enough to go beyond Haifa. 
I mean, I don't study the military prowess of Hezbollah. I know they have a lot of rockets, and I don't know how far they can go, probably far. But they were you, they, they said that this particular missile was an updated version of the Fajr missile. It doesn't matter. But the Hezbollah called it the Khaybar one. Okay? So all of these little pieces makes you begin to say, okay, yes, we want the believers in one God to be part of us, but there's a little bit of a rebellious streak as well. Yes? Yes. But even by Muhammad saying we can all, even though Allah is believing and we're Christian, you know, it was second. Yes. I mean, he feels that would be unacceptable. Of course. So, all I'm, of course it would be. Just as they said no to Jesus as the Messiah, so they also said, you know, Muhammad, you're not our guy. And for the time being, this all took place in the Quran during the time of the war that Muhammad was having. It was kind of a, a tumultuous time in the early formation of the religion. In the end, as we're going to see, something had to happen with the Jews because the Jews were going to be everywhere. You saw that great empire that I showed you. They were going to be everywhere the Muslims ran into. So what Muhammad did or what happened, whether it was... I think it was an evolution, is they, a few things about the practice of Islam changed. The direction of prayer changed to Mecca. Daily prayer was increased now to five times a day. They added a noon and a mid-afternoon one. Friday is the day of congregational prayer, but it's not Shabbat. The fast day of Asherah, the fast part, was allocated the entire month of Ramadan, okay, which is the month that is commemorating the receipt of the Quran by Muhammad. But that's how the fast changed. However, the 10th of Asherah remained as a celebratory day, except for Shiites who commemorate the death of Hussein. He also instated a pilgrimage. Now there, of course, was a, he knew about pilgrimages to Jerusalem from the Jews three times a year. Now they were, uh, a pilgrimage was instituted to the Kaaba. He instituted halas, uh, slaughter of meat, which I think we discussed last week. And he instituted no drinking of alcohol, which was different than the Jews. Now, he begins to get you begin to see, and by the way, let me stop here. The Quran is not chronological. It doesn't start with Bereshit and then go through Muhammad's life. It is piecemeal. So people, scholars have taken it apart and pretty much formulated which parts were written when. And you can tell by the tone. The first tone was welcoming a supplication, please join us. This is a little bit more derogatory. He's, he's speaking to the, his followers now and saying, the people of the scripture wish they could mislead you, but they only mislead themselves. Or a little more direct to the Jews and to the Christians, why do you confuse the truth with falsehood? 
and basically not admit that Muhammad is a prophet. Um, Surah 578 here says, Cursed were those who disbelieved among the children of Israel by the tongue of David, that's the Torah, and of Jesus, the son of Mary, that's the New Testament. Those people are cursed because they aren't buying into it. They, they lost their opportunity to have a relationship with God. This is their last opportunity. It's with Muhammad because they disobeyed before. So this one is a little bit, it's a little more, um, it's rejecting. This, problematic. This you can use to basically say there's a lot of anti-Jewish feeling in the Quran when really there's everything in the Quran. This, however, says the children of Israel were covered with humiliation because they disbelieved in the signs of Allah. And then the bottom one, fight those who do not believe in Allah or in the last day and who do not consider unlawful what Allah and his messenger have made unlawful. Now, here's the tagline. Fight until they give the jizya, which is a tax, willingly, and then they'll be humbled. So the way Muhammad worked it during his lifetime is when he conquered a town that was predominantly Jewish, he subdued them and said, you need to pay a tax. That left precedent for the rest of the Islamic empire. And here was the precedent. This is a document called the Pact of Umar. I'm not going to um, go into it a lot because it is in your, in your handout. But basically, it's an agreement attr attributed to the Khalif Umar that the Jews agree to certain rules and the Muslims agree not to bother them. That any kind of attempts at conversion will stop. So the Jews basically, and this is very key, needed to some extent act subservient to Muslims. The reason I say to some extent is because throughout the 1400 some odd years of Muslim rule, depending on who the Khalif was, most of the time, the Jews were pretty equal, except for the payment of the tax. So it depended on the ruler. There were a couple of insane rulers. Um, we won't go into them now, but here is what basically, and this is in your handout, the Pact of Umar basically said, we're not going to build our buildings taller than Muslim buildings, like a new synagogue, shouldn't be taller than a mosque. We are not going to publicly display our religion. Now, in modern times, that would mean on Simchat Torah, we won't dance out in the streets. 
We won't be celebrating loudly. We shall be, show deference to Muslims and rise when they come in. Okay. There is one we shall not mount on saddles, which literally meant we shouldn't be on horses, and they were supposed to be using mules. We shall um, not build our houses taller than those of Muslims. And so, as a result, in this area, in the hundred years that it took to expand the Muslim empire, something had to be done with all of these Jewish communities that were spread throughout the Mediterranean. And you could have your choice. You could try to, um, try to convert every last one of them, which would have been called convert or the sword, right? You've heard that before. That didn't happen to Jews and Christians. It did not. It happened, it, 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 pagans had that choice of convert or be killed. Christians and Jews were not proselytized by that. So after Muhammad, they, the, the Muslims would take over a city and they would say, here are the rules we're going to abide by and then we're going to let you do what you need to do. So that was the Pact of Umar. There was the notion of the Dhimma, the, the, um, the Arabic letter is a dha, so it's sort of pronounced Dhimma, or the plural is Dhimmi. The meaning of it is protected person. How were they protected? Every military-aged male had to pay a tax called a jizya. Otherwise, they would be left alone. And they could travel throughout the Muslim territory. And why is that important? Because guess who are the merchants still? And guess who have willing compatriots in every town that they're going to? Because where there's Jews, they can do their, their marketing and their trade. And throughout the Mediterranean, the Jews were the primary merchants, and they were primary merchants under the protection of the Muslims, anywhere in the Muslim world. Now, as I said, um, something I wrote about for my, my masters was about the crazy um, Khalif who took over in Cairo. And he made the Jews like walk um, on the ground and while he was um, up, on, up on a parapet and he said you have to bow down and you can't build your houses bigger and he really tried to enforce it but he was also a lunatic. And when he died, his name was Al-Hakim, when he died he went off into the desert and disappeared and he um, there are still followers of this caliph, and they're called the Druze. Mm -hmm. So this, the, it was a, it was a um, caliph in, he, he disappeared. It's a spiritual, um, there's a word for it, where somebody disappears and then will reappear later on. 
It's a type of, it's a type of, it's, it's less like Elijah because he would be, this guy would be the Messiah. They're still waiting for him to come back. But, I mean, he was, he was nuts. And there was one that was in Baghdad that was nuts. But that, what that means is they were a little bit more brutal to Jews. Otherwise, the Jews had it really good. And compared to the area in white north of them, where they had it really crummy, the Jews were not equal to Christians. They could not own land. They could not be merchants. They could only be, do certain things. The Jews in the Muslim uh, empire had it good. And in fact, we have the words of one Moses ben Maimon, who lived in Cairo, in Fustat, which was the precursor town to Cairo, and said, the Muslims are not idol worshipers. Idolatry has ceased to exist in their mouths and hearts, and they attribute the proper oneness to God. Now, granted, he was a doctor. He was also in the court of the caliph. He had a pretty good life. But he also was quite the brilliant man, and we looked to him for a lot of our knowledge. And as far as he was concerned, and all the books that he wrote were in what language? Arabic. Except the Mishnah Torah. Okay, Guide for the Perplexed, Arabic. So, he was content we need to, to remain understanding that during the Middle Ages, things were okay under the Muslims. What happened, now we're going to collapse history, um, collapse about 500 years of history into um, a minute and a half. This, the area that we saw became the Ottoman Empire and it decayed. And after it decayed, there was World War I, and it was split up into different countries, right? I just went through 500 years since the Ottoman Empire. And you had World War I, it was split into different countries, then you had World War II, and then you had the creation of the State of Israel. Now we need to take the concepts of Islam and its relation to the believers, okay, that was going fine, and think about why it suddenly took a turn, because it did. For many of the Muslim countries, it took a turn for two reasons. One, the Muslim countries that had been not countries under the Ottoman Empire had a lot of Europeans come in. And the Europeans came in with their ideas about Jews. And it melded into the society, particularly after World War II. So the anti-Semitism that we saw during World War II and that we see today did not exist in Muslim society until Europe ventured into the Middle East. Yes? Cheryl, this may seem very ignorant. Nothing's ignorant. This is very complicated. <laughs> Why is it that the Muslims had such um, hatred for the Jews and not the Christians? Oh, they, they, 
Um, that's a good question. I. Hmm. Or, and why do they continue to? Right. You know, so I think it has to do with these two reasons that I'm talking about. One is that Europe was very anti-Semitic, and yet the Christians were the good guys. So it was Christians that populated, colonized um, in the 19th century. And World War II also created that, um, that antipathy towards the Jews because they, um, much of the Ottoman Empire, much of the old Ottoman Empire was on the side of the Nazis, right? So there were Germans in Egypt and there were Germans in all of those places. The other reason is the state of Israel. And the state of Israel was an affront to the Muslims. Because if you go back to the pact, if you go back to Jews will be subservient, if you go back to you know your place and we know ours, and now the Jews are going to have their own country, there's a chutzpah, you know, this is, they, how dare they? So I think that's the other reason, especially in the last 60 years, 70 years, or even before when Zionism was really being created, this was a, the Jews or any really um, people of the book would have no right to their own country. How dare they? This is, this is Arab land. This is Muslim land. I'm not saying that it is. I'm saying in the minds of the Muslims. Okay, so it's a... It's an intrusion, and it's a—it's almost um, uppity, to use kind of a strange word. All right. So, so the Muslims had a relationship with Jews; it was working fine, and now suddenly they are—they own land that is really part of the Greater Arab Empire. Yes. They did. Um, certainly, the Trinity is a, makes it a different issue, and sometimes, sometimes in the Quran, it talks about three gods. So that. Christianity had that meld of one God, but also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gets into the Quran. Um, the Crusaders won. Okay, so it was a different kind of relationship of the Muslims with the Crusaders. They were conquered. They were annihilated in the, um, in the Holy Land. And so I think that's the Christians were not um, treated with loathing and demeaned like Jews became. I think more feared and enemies. So that's why I think less the Christians. Right, and actually um, the Muslims were controlling Spain and um, they were kicked out by the Christians.
the Muslims were kicked out by the Christians, right. Okay, does that sort of answer it? I mean, it's uh, anti-Semitism as we see it today did not exist before the year 1850. Yes. So going back to the very beginning when you said that how quickly um, Islam spread. Yes. And you said, you know, they captured this town and this town. Was it, and then you later said that they didn't, uh, they only forced the pagans to right. convert. So was this spread through violence? Were there, was this all through wars? Or? Yeah, medieval wars. So people on horses coming in and taking over a town, and you either chose to fight them or I mean and the army is growing right so as it leaves the Arabian Peninsula and gets up into um, what is now Syria or Egypt it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger and so I think it was easier for the civilizations that were there to just go so it was like the Crusades but it was the Islamic version yeah except it didn't have a it didn't have a um, a target location. The, the Crusades, Crusaders were going to the Holy Land to recapture it from the infidel for Christendom, basically. This was just spread of the religion, but it also was spread of territory. But again, the, the word anti-Semitism does not apply in this entire area until you get to about the year 1900, maybe 1850, 1900, with Zionism because of Jews coming in and they are not, they're supposed to be subservient. Um, okay, so then what do you get? Now we're really leaping, is you get modern anti Semitism, which has the force of the imam or the mullah or the priest, the, the person who runs the local area basically, and it gets his imprimatur, it gets his okay or it, his exhortation basically to kill the Jews. So now it, it has changed from we can get along, the Jews should know their place, um, to hostility, and the hostility, the violent hostility, that comes after the state of Israel. Like that. Yes? Well, you mean Palestine in the 20s and the 30s? Yes. By state of Israel, I mean settlement in the Yeshuv. However, the Palestinian issue, settlement in the Yishuv did not cause this, right? It caused local clashes, rioting, loss of life, things like that. Yes, pardon? They were killing each other, absolutely, but it didn't. No, that's what I'm saying. They're killing one another. Arabs killing Israelis or pal um, Jews, <laughs> Jews also killing Arabs. Oh yes, there were, there were skirmishes throughout the early 20th century. It wasn't, it was, yes, they were being, 
they were rejected. But, you know, I really liken what was happening in uh, Israel in the last month to the kinds of things that were happening in the 20s and 30s and it's kind of one-on-one -on -one things. Um, in any case, this became international. This became the Palestinian cause merged with anti-Semitism slash anti-Zionism. Okay, so it became very complicated. In fact, you saw stuff like this. That is from an, um, a Palestinian newspaper, 2002, and it's right out of the Middle Ages because it's the blood libel, because it's a Jew coming up and killing a, in this case, Arab child, because he has a kafiyan, right? for his blood. You would never see that before the year 1900. You'd, I mean, the concept wouldn't be there before the year 1900. This is European. This is not only European, this is Christian. And the, it's Christian because, and we will discuss this the next time, the blood libel comes from the fact that the Jews were held to be responsible for the death of Jesus. This is European in its origin, 2002. And from February, let's say the 18th, so from February 17th, um, 2015, on my daughter's Facebook page, and she has about, she's, her profession is social media, um, literally, that's how she earns a living. And so she has friends everywhere, and this appeared on her Facebook page yesterday. Now, what is that? That was a rumor going around Europe that said that who is the money behind ISIS? The Jews and the United States. Yesterday. <coughs> a friend of Mimi's and what that means so I'll tell you I I don't want to give too many anecdotes about my family but she, offline not on Facebook but offline in message she took this woman on and after the woman and she had conversation for a while the woman took it down so score one what Exactly. My mother told me this yesterday. They're saying that Israel and the United States are behind the IRS. And I said, okay, did you read Mimi's Facebook? Is that where you got that? No, this has been some kind of a, it's one of those things that goes around, right? So you're just, a, you're just as well that you didn't see it. I was, it was horrifying. I read a Facebook post that described this. Yes. It didn't have the picture, but it said, you know, the Americans and the Israelis and the are behind it. So did somebody just graphically produce yes. this? Yes. They graphically produced this. So it was not published in a... I, I believe it was not. The woman who is this friend of my daughter's is an artist. 
she put it, she actually had it as her profile picture, but then she took okay. it down. Oh, so you think she created it? I think she drew it. No. No. No, that is a good question. And I have to say, I hadn't heard the rumors until I saw this, and my daughter's very identified with Israel, so she, everybody else was talking to her and saying, you need to let this person have it and, you know, call her names and unfriend her and all of that stuff. And she said, no, this requires education, my 38-year-old daughter. Yay. Um, okay, yes. I think the religious element, the religious element was the foundation. It was in their, in their psyche. The land was a problem. Simultaneous to that is the word nationalism. So everybody in Europe is suddenly becoming a country in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, after World War I. So they're all becoming countries, and the Arab countries want to become countries, and so they're having a very strong sense of nationalism also. There's a tremendous number of um, amount of influences going on here. I think it was like a, like a thorn. Not to everybody. Okay, we're going to discuss jihad very quickly. We're not even there yet. In, um, in the Quran, jihad is used for the word struggle. It was originally intended as a struggle within the spirit. Because in order to be a good Muslim or a good Jew or a good Christian, one has to struggle with themselves and constantly constantly strive for being better. But it also had the impact of being a struggle for the religion itself. So whoever fights in the way of Allah, be he slain or victorious, they will get a reward. There it is right there, okay? And those who believe are in the right way, the way of God, and those who disbelieve are basically going to go to hell. That's how jihad appears, the word appears in the Quran. But it really was intended for the Arabian Peninsula. Back to Muhammad trying to convert people. And it's referring to his leadership and his followers and the people who are rejecting them. So now we're going to fast forward to stuff that you know already. We know that of, of uh, all Muslims, uh, one and a half billion, about most of them are Sunni. They're usually called the more orthodox. The word Sunnah means the way. It's exactly the same word in meaning as halakha. They venerate. Hmm? They're different, this is more conventional orthodox in quotes, meaning um, abiding by the Quran, straightforward and not having outside influences. They, mention, they venerate all the prophets in the Quran. 
Um, and they, it is very important to them that the Khalif, the person who leads them, is elected by the community. Remember we had that problem with Ali? Okay, Shiite Muslims, that's the second group, they believe that Ali was the rightful Khalif, and they followed him and his lineage. Now, for the current events part of our program, Iran's population is Shia, Bahrain is Shia, the leadership is Sunni. And let me tell you that they are having a wonderful time trying to keep a lid on all the Shia in Bahrain. You don't hear about it much. When the 10th when the of Ashura comes and the whole populace goes into the road and starts doing this, and the leadership is just hoping that there won't be any kind of political rebellion, and there are political groups that are trying to um, overthrow them. Hezbollah is Shia. The reason I write the, rest, the remainder of Lebanon is you understand that Hezbollah is a political party in Lebanon. It is one of three ruling parties. One of them is Sunni, one of them is Christian, and one of them is Shia, and that's Hezbollah. So Lebanon is just really holding up by the skin of its teeth. And, you know, every five minutes they have another rebellion, okay? So the Alawites I did talk to you about last week, they are also Shia. They are in a little section of Syria. And our friend Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite, and that's where he is from. Now that makes it an interesting situation because the rest of Syria is Sunni. But he comes from the family that's been in power. His father was in power. He is in power. That are Shia. So who's supporting them? Hezbollah. And Iran. Right? Iran's off service now because they have Sunni people coming in to destroy, you know, their lands in the meantime. But... They're sort of supporting Assad now. It'll be very interesting. If you, if you have no stake in this and you just look at it objectively, it's quite interesting. It's game theory. Um, so here's, by the way, and I just want you to know the distribution of Shia and Sunni in the world. So the world is Sunni, basically, with these few areas that are Shia. Can you, can, can you see the map better than last week? Okay. Iraq has a lot of Shia there. Iraq should actually be split into three. It should have Kurdistan on the north and Sunni on sort of on the west and Shia over close to Iran. So it, it was a mess before we got there. And um, I can't believe I'm going to say this. I will say this. Before Saddam Hussein left, he kept a lid on it because he was a dictator and he knew that the Shiites didn't like him. But when you're a dictator, you can get control over everything. And then all hell broke loose. 
So that's why they're saying maybe it would have been better if he were back. I, I have no statement on that one way or the other. Now we need to talk about fundamentalist, pure Islam, which is means the following. If you take the Torah and you just believe in the Torah and no oral law and no rabbinic discourse following the oral law, then you would be a fundamentalist. The Wahhabi believe in just the Quran and no um, interpretations that elaborate that come later. The Wahhabi movement started in the Arabian Peninsula. They made friends with the family of the Sauds who then basically conquered the Arabian Peninsula. And since then it has been Saudi Arabia. And they have a Wahhabi, they have a very fundamentalist view of Islam. But here's the one we need to know about, and that's the Salafis. Salafi is a movement that says, we only believe in the Islam that happened from Muhammad through the first four caliphs. That's it. So, they have used the term Salafi to denote this school of thought that emerged in 150 years ago, but it's strict and puritanical, more so than Wahhabi. Okay, a really quick thing on Muhammad and the Caliphate. Muhammad was known as the messenger of God. The next leader was the Khalifa Rasulullah, the successor to the messenger of God. And the first Khalif that was the first successor to Muhammad, and therefore who was called the Khalifa Rasulullah, or Khalif for short, was a man named Abu Bakr. He was elected by the community. They said he would be, he's a close friend of Muhammad. And so that word, Khalifat Rasulullah, became shortened to Khalif. I'm going somewhere with this. I know you've done, I know you did, we did this last week. So a Khalif is a political religious leader of the community. The Khalif, the Khalifat itself, lasted through the Ottoman Empire. So it started with the successor to Muhammad in 632, and it ended in the 20th century. So some, a, the empire that is ruled by a caliph, no matter how big or how small, is called a caliphate. And as I said, it started right after Muhammad's death, and it ended when Ataturk took over Turkey and made it secular. And he said to the last caliph, go retire, no more. And because the, the caliph was living in Constantinople, in Istanbul. The caliphate was ended in 1924. It should be the end of our story right now. And believe me, most Sunnis in the world agree with me. You cannot have a caliph without the community saying you can have a caliph, okay? And here's just some pictures of the fact that there were caliphates, caliphates basically um, by different groupings of people. 
And now we get to ISIS. First of all, ISIS grew out of Al-Qaeda, which was in Iraq. Their purpose was to fight the Shiite government that took over after Saddam Hussein died. So a mere 10 years ago. Okay? 10 years ago, the Shiites became in charge of the government. And Al-Qaeda, who is Sunni, said, we don't want the Shia to be part of the government, so we are going to fight against them. And then we had the surge and got friends with the Sunni tribes. However, the Islamic State grew out of Al-Qaeda that was in Iraq, and they based their philosophy on Salafi thought which basically said, they don't base it on, it is the Salafi thought. It states that only the words of the Prophet and the Quran are to be followed or the words of the Khalif, that, the first four Khalifs. But their main purpose is to bring about the apocalypse. We have not gotten into the afterlife in this class. Maybe we'll do it next year, because every, every religion has a view of the afterlife. Islam has a view of the afterlife as well. It is an amalgam of Old Testament, New Testament. It has um, a Gehenna. It has a devil kind of figure. It has Jesus, it has a Messiah. And it has what is stated in the Bible that's going to happen at Megiddo is the end of times. So the Islamic State decided that they were going to recreate our friend, the Khalifat that we saw overlooking the entire Mediterranean and they began to conquer territory. They split from Al-Qaeda. They were originally part of Al-Qaeda. Or, you know, what that means is there were 100 people who were part of Al-Qaeda that split away from it because, number one, Al-Qaeda was not Salafist. They did not believe in such a sort of, uh, I don't want to say fundamentalist, but such a strict honed-down version of, of Islam, or in the harsh methods that um, they were using. Baghdad was obviously the goal of the Islamic State, because that was the center of the caliphate for the 7th, 8th, ninth centuries. However, they saw Syria. They said, ooh, looks like we could capture some land there. And so they went into the chaos of the Civil War. They began to consolidate their towns. They got weapons from the Syrian rebels. Right, so there's a rebellion going on in Syria against Assad. It's the Sunnis who are, let's call them the free Syrian army, trying to overthrow Assad, who's Shia. Then there's a little branch of people trying to overthrow uh, um, Assad 
called Al-Qaeda in Syria, their name is Al-Nusra. So that's, yeah, Al-Nusra. Al-Nusra is rebelling against Assad. The People's Syrian Army is rebelling against Assad. Hezbollah is fighting for Assad. And, and Assad's army is fighting for Assad. So back in the elections when they said we should be arming the rebels, nobody knew who was who, and nobody knew what they were going to do with them once they got them. And guess what they did? The United States left Iraq, and the Islamic State took the weapons and began to build up their army and then began to capture oil fields. Now, the tenets that are followed by the Islamic State do not allow any interpretation beyond the year about 680 or 700. Anything built before or after that time is not kosher. So I may have showed you last year, I'm not going to take the time now because things have gone so horribly wrong, but I showed last year that they had blown up the tomb of um, Joseph, I think, in Syria. And this is the Kaaba, and they are trying to get rid of the Kaaba. It's not, it's, it was built before Muhammad, so they say it's pagan. In the meantime, a few years later, the Islamic State uh, proclaimed themselves to be a caliphate. Now, remember I told you, you can't do that. You have to have, an, it's not an election exactly, but you have to have all of the wisdom and the scholarship of the Muslims together to say, okay, we're going to have a united religion, like the Pope. But the Islamic State proclaimed themselves to be a caliphate, and they needed a caliph or a khalif. And who was the leader that took the job? He had been a prisoner of the United States in Iraq. And then he fought with Al-Qaeda. So his name was Ibrahim, I have to read it, um, Ibn Awad, Ibn Ibrahim, Ibn Ali, Ibn Muhammad, Al-Badri, Al-Samari. He came from Iraq. So he needed a name to go by. And the name that he has chosen is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Who was Abu Bakr? The first caliph, the very first caliph after Muhammad. I mean, he's sort of smart. I, I don't even know if he's alive. You know, they think they buy him and then... Anyway, his name is Abu Bakr. You will hear his name... Um, he is um, located in Mosul. So now, what does the name ISIS mean? We're going to go through that pretty quickly. It's been called a whole lot of things, and in the last five days, they've introduced another word. And I think I, we did this last year, but I have some other things to add. So what are they called? Are they called the Islamic State? So here's what they're called. They're called a Dawa al-Ismaiyah fil Iraq Washam the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. You see the word Islam in there? I just want to make sure that you see 
Islamic State, because it was all over the news today that it's very important to these people to have the word Islamic State in their name. Okay, that's the word Islamia right there. Okay, so the way you get ISIS is Islamic State of, Syri of Iraq and Syria, acronym, done. Except that um, in the Middle Ages, Sham, which is the name of Syria in Arabic, is, was a greater um, territory. It went all the way over to here. And that was called the Levant. Okay. So then instead of the Levant, the Levant, which means the easternmost part of the Mediterranean, the Levant. So um, they created a magazine called Dabik. Dabik is the name of the town where the apocalypse will happen. Didn't know that, did you? That's in northern Syria. And the reason that's where it will happen, and it is stated that it will happen, is because the Quran, like they do with Megiddo in the Tanakh, say that there will be the end of days and a big battle will occur. And this is where the Ottomans um, repelled the Mongols in Dabik. It's a little farming town, very nothing. And that's the place in the Quran that says that the end of days battle will take place. So they named their magazine that. So we're back to, oh, right. So President Obama started calling it ISIL, and everybody went, what are you talking about? It's the same name, okay, same name, except this time, instead of using Syria, they used Levant, which is that entire, it's like greater Syria, okay? It's a medieval term. And then, because we're not complicated enough, there's Daesh. Now, here's Daesh. That'll make you feel better than It's in Hebrew. When I was in Israel last year, and they were talking about the Islamic State, and all they would say was Daesh, Daesh, Daesh. Yes, he did. So there's a story about that. So what does that come from? It's, it's Daesh um, is, is sort of the way it's pronounced in both Arabic and in Hebrew. That's the primary terminology that is used in Israel for that group. Don't they say Daesh? No, it's Daesh. It's got a little I piece to it, like a Y. Daesh. Okay. So, it's the same word, okay, as ISIS and ISIL. I've underlined the letters of the word D, um, well, Aleph is for Islam, right? Ayn is Iraq, and Shin is Sham. Okay, so here it is. And we're all happy. We know that there's three names. And Obama, until Friday, 
and, and everybody in the State Department and everybody in the Defense Department was calling it ISIL. And the people in Europe were calling it ISIS, or a little bit of Daesh. So here's what happened. This is an acronym in Arabic, okay? It has been used now by President Obama, by Anonymous, which that I enjoyed in this whole horrible situation. They are going to use their weaponry, which is to shut down all of their social media in retaliation for the Paris attacks. They call them Daesh. Secretary Kerry calls it Daesh all of a sudden. It sounded like Dash when he said it. And I heard a news reporter use the word dash. And the news reporter, shall be remain nameless, said, well, they must just not want to pronounce the name. So they're saying dash, like a cipher, like we don't want to pronounce the name. Turns out that I, the Islamic State does not want to be called Daesh. No. Because it's a derogatory word. It turns out that it can be an insult. The word Daesh, or no, not the word itself, but a word that sounds very close to it. Depending on how the word is conjugated, it can mean to trample down and crush, or a bigot. And so according to the Daesh press office, <laughs> They have threatened, according to the Associated Press, to cut the tongue of anyone who publicly uses the acronym Daesh instead of referring to the group by its full name, which is the Islamic State, right? And so, President Obama and Secretary of State Kerry and, and President Hollande are going, oh, really, you don't like that name? Easy for us, okay? To me, that's why they began saying it. Now, maybe, maybe they began saying it because it was more commonly used in Europe, but it's fascinating that it's only happened in the last five days, and so much so that the news, the American news media had no clue what that meant. Okay, so that's a little known fact. Let's discuss the flag really quickly. The flag, as goofy as it looks, sorry, I'm very disrespectful here, um, is in fact the Islamic creed. There is no God but God. And where is that? Right there. And Muhammad is the messenger of God, is in that circle. It's ancient, not ancient Arabic, it's medieval Arabic. So if you read Arabic, which I read some Arabic, I still had to be told what the words were, and then I could see it. Okay? But that's all it is. The black flag, flag represents a battle that Muhammad was in. What is the goal of the Islamic State? It's to bring on the apocalypse. It's to bring on the end of days. It is fulfilling. It feels that it is their obligation to fulfill prophecy that is in the Quran, enticing Muslims to participate in the end of times. There will be a great battle of good versus evil. 
the Muslims will win. They will go into an afterlife, and the bad guys will disappear in flames of hell. They can hasten it. They are saying that it is upon us, and they are hastening it. So it turns out that there are people who are in the United States that are Salafists, which, which is that fundamentalist, very basic kind of Islam. They're, the way they regard themselves is to clean up their personal life, to prepare for a coming caliphate that hasn't happened yet, and then the apocalypse. Daesh says they are the caliphate already, and they will force the apocalypse. They are anticipating the end of the world as we know it. And by the way, it will be preceded by Jesus. And, and I'm not kidding, that's the way, that's the, way the, um, the afterlife studies and the afterlife um, writings have it that Jesus will come first and then there will be a battle to end all battles. He's, he's, um, he's acting as a prophet like Muhammad's representative. Muhammad won't come, but Jesus who has a record of coming back, so he will come back for this as well. He's very much part of the Quran. So the final Armageddon, as I said, will take place in Dabiq, and they, everyone will destroy each other. Um, I don't think we need to do that. Okay, so basically, the Salafists and ISIS today are digging in with do not argue with the people of the scripture But, and why do they have to do that? Because it was created in the Quran, right? These sentences are in the Quran. ISIS, in theory, cannot go after Jews and Christians. Not intentionally, not as, not intent, I mean, it happened. They're, what they're going after is secularists, is what they're calling it. People who are non believers. And if Jews and Christians get killed in the way, but they've actually, there was an incident in northern Syria where a Christian was uh, a prisoner and they said he cannot be punished because, as regards the people of the book, whatever. No, they have killed plenty, but not because they're Christians. In other words, they've killed journalists, they've killed, they've killed plenty of Sunni Muslims, they've killed Shiites, they've killed everybody, but they're, they're not going after them specifically. They're trying to keep this, which is part of the Quran, in their ISIS, yes. In other words, they are so strong in the letter of the law, this kind of creates a problem, but they can't go after the Jews specifically, which I think explains one of the reasons that they're not going after Israel. The other reason is that they would lose in a half an hour, and they know it.
Okay, why is, it, why is the Islamic State opposed by all the other nations? Because the Salafi interpretation of Muslim law is not recognized as a legitimate interpretation of Islam. There's, Islam is an amalgam of opinions that, form, that build on the Quran. It, that is mainstream um, Islam. Also, this is a very vicious army. This does not represent Muslims in any way, shape, or form. They terrorize Sunnis. Their goal is to overthrow every single country in the region and create a caliphate unless they get to the apocalypse or the Armageddon first. Certainly, those with Shiite majorities, like Iran, uh, reject their philosophy and methods. So that's an easy one, although what's interesting about that is Iran's friends with Russia, and Russia is fighting now. I think they're fighting the Islamic State in Syria, and so maybe Iran will get involved with that, but I don't know if they could really do that because, hmm? They have a big problem. And they, I mean, geopolitically, it's hard to know who's going to be on whose side right now. Okay, the last thing I wanted to show you is, and there's, this is on lettertobaghdadi.com that as of one year ago, 140 signatories who were scholars, legal experts, academics, imams, signed a letter to Abu Bakr that said, you are out of line. You are not Muslim. You may not kill the innocent. You may not oversimplify Islamic law. You can't force people to convert. You can't torture people. Look at all these. It's a letter written by mainstream Muslims from around the world. It's called, I think, Baghdadi, uh, Letter to Baghdadi, B-A-G-H-D-A-D-I.com. That was a year ago. That was a year ago when there were 140 signatories is why I wrote that. But there's... Did he I don't think so. I mean, I, I think he may have... Baghdadi? He, he, is, he is the um, khalif, but there are a lot... It's a very highly organized... Um, operation and there are imams who are teaching people, yes, within the state, within the region. And also they're online talking to people in the Netherlands or in Brussels, which by the way, yeah. every single one of those people, terrorists, were from Belgium. Belgium. I mean, they were living in France, but they all had, they all had, the one that, the apartment they raided this morning was in, outside of Paris. They, they went there too, but these people were Belgium. They have a tremendous terrorism problem, fundamentalist problem. What about the Wahhabi joining that letter? No. No, but I'm, I don't, you know, I don't know what kind of representation. There could have been some people from Saudi Arabia who had some um, legal institutes that were on there. But they were, it was worldwide. All right, I just wanted to show you where Raqqa is. 
which is where the bombing is taking place because it's the sort of headquarters of the Islamic State of Daesh. However, Abu Bakr um, al-Baghdadi is in Mosul. So, so here's where I ended, and I ended it this way last year, but, um, yeah. and look, nobody's changed. <laughs> I don't think there's one different person in this picture. That's kind of interesting, to say the least. And I have certainly no, I mean, what should they do, and then, Now, I will, I will say that political scientists and the people who run these um, think tanks are saying that the Islamic State, I shouldn't call it that, um, that Daesh is in fact losing power on the ground. They've, they're losing a lot of people and they're not gaining territory. Yeah, it's hard to run a state. Yeah. It's hard to run a state, but what what the fear is, yes, the so the territorial gains have been stopped. Their their infrastructure has been a little bit depleted, but they're by no means gone. But they have an outreach because of social media in every country in the world. Now, the horrible people that did this on Friday night were petty criminals, drug dealers. They found a place that they could get meaning in their lives, and that was through belief, it was through study, it was through wanting to join a cause. And that cause is, because that cause is sort of terminal, um, it ends in an end, by, by their very nature, they're suicidal. And so that's why you can't fight them as easily, because you have no, um, you have no reward for them, basically, no option. So that's kind of where I want to stop it, and it's, um, it has been difficult for me to wrap my head around all of this stuff this week. There's been a lot of noise on the internet, on Twitter, on all of the cable news stations, and I would say that most of the cable news stations do not have a clue what they're talking about. But I will say that I-24 News, which I talked to you about last week, Nessia, it's on I-24.com or I-24TV.com, which is out of Israel. Outstanding conversations. They really, really know their stuff, and they bring in very, very smart people. So I, I do highly recommend that station. Oh, okay, yes. It's, it's an online station. Mm -hmm.